You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Uh, but for right now, we're going to continue on with our service. Uh, we have another uh, special guest speaker with us today. Uh, he's actually uh, the president of, of I68 Ministries, and so down in Mexico. I know our church. If, if you're not familiar with our church or new to our church, we each year we mentioned it earlier in March. We're going to be going back down again and, and just uh, doing some efforts down there. And so Scott, his wife Shannon, and then actually Tony and Orpha are here as well today. If if you're a part of the North Valley family and maybe you've been down there before, you know Tony and Orpha. So I uh, just want to encourage you to connect with them. And again, we have that that meeting after uh, service today for our Mexico mission trip. And so, uh, but Scott is here. He's going to be bringing the message today and then just getting to know Scott over the last few years. Uh, he's a man who just uh, has, a, has a passion for, for the word of God and, and loves talking about it, loves teaching it. And so I know I'm excited to sit under his teaching today and, and, and hopefully you guys are as well. So right now, would you join me in helping welcome Scott Swartzentruber? Uh, good morning. How's everybody got to sleep in a little bit and make it to church? It's good to be with you. It's good to be here. If you have a Bible, you can turn it to Psalms 19. If anyone carries an actual Bible versus a smartphone, you can, you can kind of guess where the middle is opening up and you're going to be really close to Psalms. It's a little party trick you can use to impress your friends. <laughs> Psalms 19. Psalms are a really unique portion of Scripture. What they are is they are poetry that was written and then put to music and then sung as worship songs and praise songs to God. And so they would write out a truth and they would rhyme it with another truth and then that would become a worship song. And sometimes they would just contrast a truth with another truth to make the point of the truth very clear. And so the Psalms are full of truths sung to music and sang as praise songs to God. And even today, for generations, that's been true, but there's, there are music groups out today. I, I have an album from, I think, Shane and Shane, and they took all a bunch of psalms, and they put them to music. And it's just a great way to learn Scripture, fill your mind with Scripture, memorize it, to know what is true, is take Scripture, put it to music, and just listen to it and sing it. And so that's what the psalms really are. And there's 150 of them, and about half of them were written by a guy named David, and David wrote those Psalms 19 that we're going to study today. And we know a lot about David's life because a lot of it is recorded in the Old Testament. From a young boy to an adult to a man. And David was a son and a brother and a father and a husband and a friend. And he was a warrior. He commanded armies. And he was a soldier and he was a composer and he was a dancer. And he was a man's man that had a lot of passion and he was a worship leader. And he was a lion killer, and he was a giant slayer, and he was anointed king of Israel, which was God's people, and he reigned on the throne of God's people for many years. And he's also in the lineage of Jesus, our Lord. When God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that a descendant of his would reign on the throne forever, meaning Jesus, David is in the middle of that lineage. You've got Abraham and you've got Jesus, and in the middle there is, is David. And so he really had a remarkable life. There was another mediocre or average. He experienced all of life from the highest highs. He had tremendous victories and triumphs, and he had incredibly painful tragedies and loss. He lost a son. He was betrayed by his best friend. He, he had it all. 
And we can tend to make David out to be a hero because his stories are so big and epic and legendary. But David isn't really the hero of his own story. What's beautiful is that he wrote all these psalms, and we get an inside look. So instead of just seeing the outside, the exterior, the part that we want to emulate and be like, we get to see what made David tick and what made David David. And whenever David experienced something great or mediocre or low, he wrote a psalm about it. So when he had victory, he wrote a psalm about it. When he lost the battle, he wrote a song about it. When he committed adultery and then murdered to cover it up, he wrote a psalm about it. Like these are raw and vulnerable and open and a great insight into what made David tick. And as great as his life seems, which it was, it wasn't David that made David David. When we read the Psalms, we see, excuse me, we see that what made David David was his relationship with his God. David had this incredible, real, tangible peace and joy and an anchoring and a perspective on life that made him who he was. And that was all because that God was his source of life. He had so much affection and so much love for God. He's known as the man that chased after God's own heart. That doesn't mean his heart was the same as God's. It means that there's God's heart. I'm spending everything I got to chase after it because that's all I want. And that's what made David great. And we live in really crazy, uncertain times, and we don't know what 2022 is going to bring us. When we look out, we see more uncertainty than certainty and stability. We've got leaders and politicians screaming at each other, and we've got, um, I don't even know what uh, the pandemic is, what variant we're on. It seems like a new one comes out every other day. We We see a lot of uncertainty and uncertain times. But what if we gathered a year from now and we look back on 2022 and, and we let Psalms 19 be our blueprint to give us that peace and that joy that would not shake us? What if we could celebrate the fact that, you know, 2022, the Word of God transformed me and whether great things happen this year or terrible things happen this year, to me personally and, and to us collectively, there's just this sense of it's going to be okay because of the God that I love and serve. The peace and joy that David experienced is available to us. And it's available to us through his word and through Psalms 19. So I want to read through the entire psalm, and then it's really broken down into three sections, and we'll take each section and work through it. So follow along with me, if you will, as I read. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. 
Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The first section here is broken down in the first six verses. And we see a a collection of words here that give us insight into what's being said and what we need to see. If you look at it, you're going to see words in each verse that talk of a certain subject. The heavens are telling, they are declaring, there is speech, there is a revelation of knowledge, there are words, there are things being heard, and there is a sound. And if you were to collect all those words and try and put a category in, what would the category be? It'd be something along the lines of communication. Like something is being communicated by creation. So when we see creation, there is a message that we are to receive from that creation, from seeing it. There is something being revealed. And what is it that's being revealed? Behind creation is a creator. So when we see the sun rise in the east and set in the west, and we see the rainfall that makes the flowers grow and the grass grow and make it green... We're to think, wow, what an amazing creator there must be. What an all-powerful, amazing creator there must be. It's one thing to appreciate nature. I love being outside. I love hiking the mountains and going to the ocean. But it's an entirely different thing to receive the message that creation is sending us. To miss the message or ignore the message is to fail before we even begin. Creation exists for a purpose, and it's to point us to the creator who created it. When we see creation, we say, wow, what a creator. Romans 1.20 helps us by saying that everyone, for since the creation of the world, his, meaning God's, invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature, they have been clearly seen, being understood through what was made so that they are without excuse. That all people are without excuse because you look at the nat- at creation and think, well, what possible other explanation is there? I was preparing for this and I was trying to come up with what, what other possible explanations have people come up with? And, you know, about 90 years ago, some scientists came up with the Big Bang Theory, and I think they teach it in schools, unfortunately. But it's, it's the most preposterous, ridiculous idea you can think of. And this is the best that man can come up with. It's like taking this drum set with all its materials and steel and drum heads and cymbals and all these plastic and rubber pieces and reducing them down to their original raw material. But the raw material actually didn't exist, so the, the analogy only goes so far. But let's say you reduce it down to the original material, you put it in a box and you shook it until this came about. That's the Big Bang Theory. That's the best man can come up with outside of a creator. And anyone with a brain should be insulted, and your intelligence should be insulted by saying, yeah, Big Bang Theory, like it's absurd. The only logical and reasonable and right and rational conclusion to creation is there is a creator. And that's the message we are to receive. Many years ago, my wife and our youngest daughter, we took a missions class as we were getting into the missions world. And it's a college-level course called Perspectives of the World Christian Movement. Highly recommended. It's offered around Phoenix. It's college-level. You can get credit for it. It's 13 weeks. And each week, they would bring in a a different missionary or a mission expert to teach us about missions. And one of my favorites was a 
guy by the name of Brad Boozer who had taken his young family to this very remote island called Papua New Guinea, which is about as far away from here as you can get. And this island is full of these little tribal people. They call them people groups. And they're identified as people groups because each group speaks their own language and they don't communicate with the other languages and they don't communicate with each other. The only time they would interact with the next village is if they felt threatened by it and then they would go to war and they would, they'd kill each other. So Brad takes his family to this, this tribal village and they plant themselves there for the purpose of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And the first thing he has to do is learn the language. And this tribal village has no contact with the outside world. If you are born in a hut in this village, you will never travel more than two or three miles outside of a radius of that point where you were born. There's no radio, there's no TV, there's no communication in or outside of this village. So just picture how remote and isolated they are. And it took Brad seven years to learn the language, develop an alphabet, teach the alphabet so that he could translate the scriptures and begin to teach the way of salvation to these people. And during that seven years, what he did learn was that they had beliefs. Even though they didn't know the God of the Bible and even though they didn't have the scriptures and no one had come to tell them anything different, the only logical conclusion they could come to was there are gods in heaven that are making things happen. When the clouds come one day and not the other day, there must be someone controlling that. When the rain comes one day and not the next week, there must be someone behind that. So even this uneducated, isolated, completely cut off people group understood that obviously there's a creator that's controlling everything. But what doesn't creation tell us about God? It reveals that there is a God, but what doesn't it do? It does not tell us how we are to relate to him. Is God happy with us? If we didn't have the word of it, is he angry with us? What makes him pleased and what makes him upset? How does he see us and how are we to see him? And so we need something more. This tribal village had nothing to go on except what they thought. And so what they decided that they would believe about the gods is that whatever appetite they had, the gods just had bigger appetites of the exact same thing. So if I had an appetite for anger, the more over-the-top expression of that anger I could, I could come up with, that would make the gods happy. One of the most horrific stories, I won't share all the details, but had to do with, with a sexual appetite and the things that they would do in the name of the gods in order to make them happy. So imagine that every time you were hangry, you just went nuts expressing your anger to everybody and that made the gods happy. That's what they concluded. They had nothing else to go on. They knew there were gods. They did not know how to relate to them or how they saw them. And so we need something more, and that leads us into the next section of our scriptures. The next three verses talk about the Word of God, and this is what theology experts would call a special, specific revelation of God. Creation is general, and everyone sees that, but the people with the Word of God get a specific, specific and special revelation of God. And I want you to see in these three verses that there's two lines in each verse, so there's, six, there's three sets of sixes here. There's six names for the Word of God. There are six declarations about the Word of God that go with those names. And then there are six promises connected to that. And we don't, we don't have time to go all through, through them, but I want to just read to you the, the six names of the Word of God. 
It is the law of God. It is the testimony of the Lord. It is the precepts of the Lord. It is the commandment of the Lord. It is the fear of the Lord. And it is the judgments of the Lord. These are all names for God's word, for the Bible, for scripture. When we say any of those things or the things I just said, we're referring to God's word. And we need to understand what God's word is. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, every single word of scripture was inspired by God. That word actually means breathed out. It came from his mouth. Like the Bible is not man's opinion about God or assumptions about God or discoveries about God. The Bible, the word of God started with God and through the power of the Holy Spirit was given to men to write down so that you and I could read it, understand it, comprehend it, and be saved by it. So the word of God starts with God. It literally came right out of his mouth. And when I, when I recognize that and acknowledge that, it just kind of makes me tremble a little bit when I hold this. Like it is a powerful book that changes lives. And then I want you to see the, the declarations that it makes about itself. It is perfect. It is sure. It is right. It is pure. It is clean. It is true. Words are important, and sometimes words lose meaning. If we study each one of these words, we realize how rich and deep and the significance of what's being said here. And then there are six promises that go with it. It restores the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It endures forever, and it is altogether righteous. I want you to see two things in this section of, of Scripture that we're looking at. One, I really want you to feel the weight of, of what the Word of God is saying about the Word of God. Like it is making some astronomical claims about itself. I have this silly analogy that keeps coming to mind, but imagine that the Word of God is in the interrogation room being interrogated. What do you have to say for yourself? Think of the old Jack Nicholas and Tom Cruise movie where he, Jack Nicholson is on the on the stand and he starts yelling, you can't handle the truth. Like I'm, I'm imagining that kind of scenario. Word of God, what do you have to say for yourself? And it, and it lists out these declarations and it lists out these promises. The interrogator would be like, you belong in a sane asylum. The claims you're making can't possibly be true. And yet the word of God is making them. It will restore the soul. It will make us wise. It will rejoice our hearts. It endures forever. Not one word of this book will ever go away. And so we have to decide, is that the weight that we place on the Bible? Is that what it means to us? Is it the actual bread of life? Or do we treat it like a, a vitamin or a New Year's habit? of Oh, yeah, I should read my Bible, and I should exercise, and I should eat better, and I should... It doesn't fit in that category. It is either the living Word of God or we just need to throw it out as pig slop because it's completely worthless. It doesn't give us a neutral ground. It's like, yeah, I kind of sort of like the Bible. If, if that's the posture, then you're not reading what the Word of God says about itself. It brings life. It is the bread of life. And so that's the weight of the Word of God. And does it have that weight in your daily life, day in and day out? Is there a dependency upon the Word of God? You know, we go without food and uh, I, I can tough it out for a few minutes, right? It's like, oh, I'm getting a little bit hungry. I'm going to pretend I'm not. You know, it doesn't last very long. And then pretty soon my wife will be like, hey, what's going on with you? And it's like, I'm really hungry. 
right? We want that same type of hunger for the Word of God. I want people in my life to notice what's going on with you. It's like, I just, I haven't had time to get into God's Word today. Oh, okay. Well, go do that because I don't like you right now. I want that to be true of me because that's the power of the Word of God. The second thing is I want to work through one of these verses and just, how does that work? How does it make these claims and and how does it tangibly work in our lives? So we'll just take a look at the first one there, which is verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. And by law of the Lord, again, it's a general name, can be considered for the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible. But it's also a little bit more specific. We can look at maybe the commandments when it says law. What are the specific commandments of God? You know, the first of the Ten Commandments is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's of the Lord, and it's perfect. And we need to understand perfect. I learned a lot by studying this. When perfect, it doesn't just mean there's no mistakes in it. It means it is completely and entirely sufficient. There are not ten ways to get to God, and he's given us nine of them, and we're left on our own to figure out the tenth way. Everything we need to know to live a holy, pleasing life to God is right here. And this is under attack. The sufficiency of Scripture is under attack today. We're like, hey, we, yeah, the Bible, yeah, the Bible, but I need a self-help book, and I need a life coach, and I need some business leadership, worldly wisdom, which isn't really a thing. I'm gonna, it's one of several things. No, the Word of God is completely and entirely sufficient. It's authoritative in, in, in everything that we need to live the life that we were designed to live to be full of that joy and that peace and to have that anchoring to be able to endure no matter what comes our way in 2022 and beyond. So it is perfect, lacking nothing. And it restores the soul. What does that mean, it restores the soul? It returns the soul to its rightful place. And our souls, my soul and your soul, is the only eternal part of us. Nothing else about us will remain except our souls. Jesus says that what does it gain a man, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Jesus is telling us that the most important part of us is our soul. And so the law of the Lord is perfect and sufficient to return our souls to where it belongs with our Creator. So how, do, how does that happen? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, so I'm going to go and I'm going to obey that, and my soul is going to be restored. That's our first thought, right? How are we doing at nailing, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Because when God commands it, he's saying do it every second of every day your entire life. How many people have done it every second of every moment today? So so what are we to do with that? It restores the soul. It's the only place my soul needs to be, and yet... If it's up to me to obey it, to get there, I'm in trouble. And that's exactly what the Word of God does. The law of God, its very first purpose in Scripture, is to bring us to the end of ourselves, to force us to be honest and diagnose. It's like an x-ray machine, a CAT scan, and a thermal imaging unit all at once, and it exposes none of us have done that. All of us have fallen short. It makes Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, very personal. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law of the Lord does that. If you ever meet anyone that says, yeah, I'm, I'm obeying the Ten Commandments and I'm nailing it, 
they're not looking at God's law. They have reduced it to something that man can attain. Man cannot attain God's law. It's like going to the doctor and getting a diagnosis that's terminal. And you're just, what, <clears throat> what are my options? Can I have surgery? Nope, it's not an option. Is there medicine? No, there's not an option. Are there habits I can, I can participate in that'll give me a better chance? No, there's nothing you can do. Well, what am I left with? Mercy. Crying out for mercy. The law of God brings us to the end of ourselves, exposes how inadequate we are, but it doesn't heal us. An x-ray machine doesn't heal the broken arm. It exposes the broken arm. The law of God exposes the sin and the condition inside of us, and that drives us to the foot of the cross for mercy. Because everything that we did not do, Jesus Christ did. He's the only one who has ever perfectly obeyed every command of the Father. And what did he do? He went to the cross and died a sacrificial death for you and for me. And they buried him, but the grave had no power over him. And three days later, he walked out. And in his crucifixion and his resurrection, there is victory over sin and there is victory over death. And believing in what Christ has done for us that you and I could not do is our ticket, is our salvation. Mercy has a name and it's Jesus Christ. And when we believe in what Christ has done and we stop pretending that, that it's 99% Jesus and 1% me, or salvation is somehow some kind of um, potluck where we all bring a dish and we all participate. You know, we tend to think about it that way. When we stop doing that and being, I, I have nothing to offer. It's mercy I need. In that moment, we are given the righteousness of Christ. And when God sees us, he sees perfect righteousness that only Christ had. It is ours by believing, not by doing. It is ours by trusting and relying, not by doing. And so the word of God, the law of God restores us because it brings us to the end of ourselves. Going back to our friends in Papua New Guinea, when he got the language translated and put an alphabet together, he didn't translate it, but he made it so that he knew it and so that the people could read it and understand it. He taught a, a system called creation to Christ. You start in Genesis 1 and you get to Christ. And he did Genesis 1 and God created and they, they stopped believing in all these false gods that they had believed in. And they were just really excited about this God that had created everything because every time he creates something, it is good. And like, yes, that's amazing. And then they get to Genesis 2 and creates Adam and Eve and he's, they're, they're even more excited. He would teach and then he would let them sit on it and stew on it. And he just really wanted to make sure that they understood what was going on. And so they read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and they're just on cloud nine because now they know who God is. And they're so excited to read the rest of the book. And they get to Genesis 3, and what happens in Genesis 3? Eve is tempted by the apple. And Brad's teaching them, and they're on the edge of their seats, and they're screaming at him, Eve, don't eat the apple. Don't do it. God's going to be so angry with you if you do it. Don't do it. And she takes a bite of the apple, and they just they lose it. They're just like, no, and they understand that, that Adam and Eve's sin is our sin and we've inherited that condition and they're just devastated. They're just a wreck. And so Brad continues on his um, method of allowing them time to absorb it and internalize it. And so he just, he stops teaching for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, I don't remember how long. And he starts to notice that all these tribal men have changed their daily routines and habits. 
and they're not taking care of their crops, and they're not out hunting, and they're just kind of they're just kind of moping around. And he's like, okay, I need to find out what's going on here because I've never seen this in the seven or eight years I've been here. So he gathers everybody together and he's like, guys, what's up? And it's like, well, we see how good God is and we see how sinful we are. So what's the point of trying to continue living? God just needs to kill us now because that's what we deserve. Brad's like, okay, I think you get it. I'm pretty sure that you understand and comprehend your condition before God. And let me tell you, there, there's a Savior coming later in the story, and he's going to make everything right. And they're like, really? Yeah, really. Okay. So let's read about Noah. Oh, he's the Savior. No, no, no. Hold on. It's not Noah. You know, he, he's pointing to the Savior. He's not the guy. Okay. And let's read about Moses. Maybe he's the Savior. And that's him, right? Nope, it's not Moses. Is it Abraham? Is it David? Come on. Come on, Brad. Give us the Savior. Give us the Savior. And it's like, we'll get there. We'll get there. And when he got to the Savior, when he got to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, men were just, they went crazy and they gave themselves, they gave their lives to Christ and they were baptized. And to this very day, there's still a church in that place where years ago, 20, 30 years ago, they had never heard the name of Jesus. That's the power of the word of God. That's how it works in their lives and that's how it works in our lives. And so that moves us into this last section of scripture where we really get some intimacy into how David sees himself and how he sees himself before God. And if we read these words, we get a picture of his, his tone and his attitude and his posture. He refers to himself as a servant that is being warned. Like, who can discern his errors, he said. Acquit me of hidden faults. David's saying... God, if you don't help me, if I don't have your word, I'm going to love the things that are trying to kill me and I'm going to hate the things that are trying to save me. Like, you got to help me. I need your word. I am dependent upon your word. So we see this great picture and posture of humility and dependency and neediness in David, which is the only appropriate response when we see the all-powerful God of creation and we see what our relationship with him is like through his word. We cry out for mercy and we, we're given mercy. We're given the perfect righteousness of Christ. The only possible conclusion to that is humility and dependency and praise and worship. A Christian that walks in pride or a Christian that walks with a strut and says, look at me, look how great a Christian I am, is not a Christian. They don't understand how this works. So there's this deep humility. David understands what the treasure is. He understands where his salvation is found. David understands his enemy. And I think that's a big one. A lot of times we, we treat our sin as if it's kind of a pet lion that we're keeping in the living room. And it's okay. It, it hasn't bitten me yet. It's okay. It hasn't eaten me. But then you read the story. It's like, where'd that guy go? Well, the lion devoured him. Well, why did it do that? I thought it was his pet. Because that's what lions do. Lions eat people. Sin kills people. Its only purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy your life. Sin is not your friend. Hate sin and love God. David understands that. When we read God's word, we understand who our friends are and we understand who the enemy is. We understand who's lying to us and we understand who's telling us the truth. And so we get this picture of God's servant, which is beautiful. We get the creation of God reveals creator. We get 
God revealing himself through his word, and then we get the right response of us as Christians. And so if you have been here, if you've been a Christian for some time or for a long time, I have two special encouragements for, for those of us that have called ourselves a Christian a long time. One is we tend to forget how our relationship with God works. We tend to go into a mode of, I was saved and now I'm going to go about my life. Like, as if Jesus is handing out admitting tickets to heaven, like, okay, thanks for, thanks for the ticket to heaven. I'll see you when I get there. I'm going to go about my life. I got this. But we don't see that in Scripture. We don't see that in Psalm 19. We don't see that anywhere in David's life. The Christian never outgrows dependency upon Christ. We are so dependent upon him for our salvation, we'd never outgrow that. In fact, mature Christians, maturity is seen in an increased dependency upon Christ. Not an independence, an increased dependency. When we come to realize how needy we are and how unstable everything is and how dependent we are upon God, and we go to him for absolutely everything, no matter how silly and small it might seem, when we go to him, that is revealing a maturity that we have as Christians. So we grow in dependency. There's many great preachers have said this before me, and I think it's very important to repeat, that the only thing you and I contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's all we bring. Christ does everything. We just cast ourselves upon him. The second encouragement I'd have for Christians is, just as the people of Papua New Guinea believed in these gods and had these crazy beliefs, what did you believe in before you believed in Christ? A lot of times we just assume we didn't believe in anything and all of a sudden we started believing in Christ. That's not true. We had confidence in something. What was it? It's really important to understand this because in moments of temptation, in moments of stress, in moments of busyness and anxiety, of tiredness, whatever the case may be, we will drift back into relying upon that thing. Whatever it is, maybe it's an escape, maybe it's entertainment, maybe it's a person. Like, oh, I've got this situation, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go run to this person. Or maybe it's a, a relationship that's really difficult to handle and it's causing a lot of emotion. Like, I'm, I'm gonna go escape, I'm gonna go binge watch Netflix for three days. Or I'm gonna go drink, or I'm make, take medication, or, or I'm gonna eat a whole box of ding-dongs. You know, what, what is it that we went to? Identify that so that when we're in those situations and we feel the draw to lean into that, we're like, no, I'm not doing that. Stop. I'm going to repent and I'm going to turn to Christ. Okay. And, and tell him, like, God, everything in me wants to go eat a box of ding-dongs, but I'm not. I'm going to go to you. I want you to be tangible. I want you to be real. I'm depending upon you. Our dependency in Christ increases. And so identify what it was you did believe in so that you don't fall back into it. And if you're not a Christian and you're starting out the new year by visiting us, I'm so glad that you're here. My encouragement to you is today is the day of salvation. Don't clean yourself up. Coming to church doesn't get a box on the right side of the ledger for you. We're glad that you're here to hear the word of God and how it works. But bring whatever you are to the cross. Bring all your sin and all your shame and all your failures and all your wreckage, and all the people you've damaged, bring it all. Say, here you go, Jesus. Here you go. 
attempting to clean it up before coming to Christ is like my two-year-old grandson dumping out a bottle of syrup and trying to clean it up with a dry paper towel. Can you imagine the mess that would make? That's what we look like when we attempt to clean up our sin. No, we need, we need the Father to clean it up. We need to go to Christ. And so let's acknowledge God. When we walk outside and we see the beautiful campus, let's acknowledge God every day. Let's dive into his word every single day. And let's increase our dependency upon him every moment of every day. Let me pray for us. Father God, we, we love you. We thank you for creation. We thank you that it points to you and reveals you. We thank you for your word and that you have revealed to us how we can be in right relationship, how our souls can be restored to you. God, we thank you and we praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.